Good morning, church. I'm very excited to be here um, this morning uh, and able to, to bring the word uh, that God has given me. Um, if we've not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Shane Belter. I am a community group leader here at Solid Rock, uh, also one of the elder mentees um, and on the preaching team. And really excited to, to get to, to bring forth the word um, that God has given me. Um, this past week, uh, we had VBS. Um, so Monday through Thursday, we had 60 kids and 25 volunteers who were here at the church every night uh, doing uh, different crafts, activities, worship, and learning different uh, stories about Jesus and how Jesus shines the light in our everyday lives. And so even though it was the hottest week in July, uh, we still had a great time. Um, and what I got to do was um, teach uh, snack big story time. So we had 40 to 50 kids all outside in the heat having snack, and then I was charged with teaching them a story. So they were very engaged, as you can imagine. Um, so I'm still coming out of a lot of yelling, getting everyone to clap if they're listening, that kind of thing. So I didn't do that in the first service, so hopefully I don't do that here as well. Um, but it was a great time uh, at VBS. Um, so we're going to be continuing uh, the the series that we're in right now in the, the Suffering Saints series. Um, and just to, to recap, uh, Jason started in week one and talked on Adam and how sin and suffering entered the world through Adam's sin and through sin, suffering entered the world. And then Pastor Blake has been teaching the last two weeks. Uh, he taught on Daniel two weeks ago and really focused on how Daniel was persecuted for his faith and how that suffering in, unfolded in his life and how we we're to walk with God through that. And then last week he preached on Joseph and really seeing how Joseph walked through the suffering that was brought on by the sins of the other people in his life and those around him. And so today we're going to step into the story of Job. Now, many of you may have heard this story and we're going to look at the suffering of Job but we're also going to look at those around him and how they responded and helpful things that we can learn from those around him and what we is what we can do and maybe what we shouldn't do and what we're also going to look at is how the enemy fits into our suffering and really having a right size view of him and really the major goal of this sermon and really the overall goal of the series is to encourage us to move into relationship with God and into relationship with one another because suffering can be so isolating. It can make us feel like we're alone and we're the only person who's going through this. But the goal for this is for us to move towards God and towards others because we're called to live in community and relationship. So as we move into Job's story, Job was a character in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at his, the, the overarching whole story of Job. Um, so there's going to be parts where we're doing overviews because there's 42 chapters, and I don't want to be here till Tuesday. Um, so we're going to go over uh, a lot of the, the book, um, but then we're really going to hone in on, on chapter 2. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to Job. Job says that he is a man of the land of Uz, and he is a great man. And it says he has a lot of possessions, a lot of uh, cattle. He has sheep, uh, camels oxen, donkeys, and hundreds if not thousands of them, and many servants that go along with them. It also says that he has a very large family. He has seven sons and three daughters and is married, and all day, most days, the, his children are coming together and eating together and drinking, and so we see that they're not in the fields, that they're taken well care of, and so there's a very successful, very prominent 
man of Job. And not only that, but we see that he is an upright man, that he is blameless and a man of integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. So we're introduced to Job, and his life is going really well. And then the scene changes, and we get this glimpse into heaven, where we see the sons of God, or angels, coming before the Lord in the throne room of God, and Satan is there with them. And God is asking the angels and Satan, where have you been? And God then says, have you considered my servant Job? That he's an upright man and blameless, who who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan says, of course he does. You've blessed everything in his life. You've placed a hedge of protection around him. Of course he does. But if you take all that away, he will curse you to his face. So God says, okay, take all that he has, but don't touch Job. And so from there, Satan leaves, and some time pass, and then on one day, in a single conversation, someone approaches Job, one of his servants, and said, the Sabians fell upon the donkeys and the oxen and stole them and killed all your servants. And while he was speaking, yet another servant came up behind him and said, The fire from heaven fell down and killed all of the sheep and the servants. And it says, While he was still speaking, the Chaldeans came and took all the camels and killed all of those servants. So right there in the matter of a minute, Job lost everything that he had. All of his possessions, all of his wealth, everything that made him who he was as a prominent, successful man, his livelihood was taken. And then, on the back of that, another servant came. and said, a storm came, a great wind came and knocked down the house, or the four corners of the house where your ten kids were, and they're all dead. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine hearing that you've lost everything you own and then not 10 seconds after that because the the writer says that while he was still speaking the next servant came up that you've lost your entire family how would you respond I don't know how I would respond but we see how Job responded In Job 1, 20 through 21, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The first main point, and we're going to have five for this sermon. The first one is that God is worthy of our praise, no matter our circumstance. That Job knew that although everything in his life had changed in that instance, that God was still God. That God was still sitting on his throne and he was still worthy of worship. And so in the face of this ultimate tragedy, God... Job looked at God and said, you have given me all this and you took it away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. I pray, too, that we can respond in praise to God when these things happen to us. But that can only happen if we have a really, really big view of God. If our, God, if our view of God is small, then we're not going to respond this way. We're going to be upset or angry or hurt at God, but when we have a huge view of God that He is everything that we need and more, that we can praise Him no matter our circumstance. And church, I know that this is hard. So as we move into the main text this morning in chapter 2, that's the context of where we are. The brokenness, the suffering of Job is there. So as we step into chapter 2, we see the writer of Job start, says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. So we see the again is the context for where this is starting. And we get this glimpse into heaven where we see, again, the sons of God, the angels and Satan are coming for God to give an account. And notice in verse 2 that God is asking Satan, from where have you come? Now, God knew where Satan was. This wasn't God seeking information because he wanted to make sure that Satan wasn't doing something he shouldn't have been. It's the same Hebrew word and, and grammatical structure where when God asks Adam in the garden, where are you after he had eaten of the apple? Or again later, when God asks Cain, where is your brother? So he's holding them to an account, and he's doing that with Satan here, saying, where have you been? Reminding him that he, God, is in control. And so we see that Satan kind of gives a non-answer. God says, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been around, going to and fro, here and there. You see that Satan has not changed and his schemes haven't changed. In 1 Peter 5.8, we see Peter reaching out to the Jews who are in exile and says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's important that we have a right view of Satan, that we don't make him too much, that we don't make him everything, that every bad thing in our life, that we rebuke Satan. It's also important that we don't ignore him. It's also important that we don't forget about him and just count him off. It's important that we see him as he is, and Paul has teaching on this when he's, reaching, he's writing the letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a real spiritual battle going on around us every day. 
but it's important to know that it's not God on one side and Satan on the other side and they're warring in armies and that some days Satan wins and some days God wins. That's not how it is. That God is on his throne ruling and reigning and Satan can do nothing that God does not allow. That God is in complete control over everything. Because we see in chapter 1, as I was describing, that God said, yes, you can take everything, but you cannot touch Job. And then we'll see later in chapter 2, as Mike read, that Satan's going to accuse him again, and and God's going to say, you can touch him, but you cannot kill him. That God is in control of our suffering. Again, if we go back to how Job responded in in chapter 1, In verses 21, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job knew that God was in control. He knew that God was in control even over his suffering. And that's the the second main point Our takeaway today is that God is in control and is sovereign over the good times and the hard times. And this can be a great comfort for us. Because as as Pastor Blake preached last week, we know that God works all things for our good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And as we saw in Genesis 50 with Joseph, what man meant for evil, God used for good. So when we take what we know about God being a good, righteous, just Father, and we know that He is in control over everything that happens, that we can trust Him in the good times and in the hard times. The disciples were were struggling with this um, when they were with Jesus in His ministry. And so there was a time when Jesus and His disciples were, were walking uh, down a street, and they saw a blind man who had been born, born blind, and he'd been blind his whole life. And the disciples asked Jesus, whose sin is it that this man was born blind? Was it his father's or his? And Jesus says, it was neither that his father sinned nor that he sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples were looking at reasons for suffering. And Jesus says, We need to look at it different. The reason he was born blind was so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Jesus then goes on and heals the blind man. And then the Pharisees later accuse Jesus of healing him on the Sabbath. And then the blind man goes back to him. And this is one of the first instances in the Gospels of Jesus claiming to be the Messiah and accepting worship as the true Messiah. So we see that man who was born blind for that moment. But it wasn't because of sin. So as we transition back into Job, the scene is still there. We, the angels and Satan are before God in the throne room. And in verse 3 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, 
a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So this is a very interesting situation. It's very peculiar. It's Satan and the angels are back before God to give an account for what's going on. And it's not like Satan comes back to God and says, Hey, 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 listen, I was wrong about Job. Let me actually make him sick and touch him, and then he'll curse you to his face. It was God who brought back the attention to Satan to say, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He still is a blameless man who has his integrity and who turns away from evil, although you incited me against him. There, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, I listened to uh, a lot of different teachers and, and wrote, read different things that people wrote on this particular passage. And one of the things that uh, John Piper used as an analogy I thought was really helpful to really grasp the strangeness of this situation. He said it's like a jewelry store owner who's working in his jewelry store. And in the back door comes a thief. And the thief is looking around and the jewelry store owner sees the thief and he goes and gets him and says, thief, come with me. And they come over to the center of the store where there's this display case with lights and this big display, and the jewelry store owner goes, hey, this is my best piece. You should look at this one. This is the one that you should try to steal. It's weird. But God had a purpose in that, in that he knew that Job's faith would stand. And it wasn't because of Job, it was because of God. And that God knew that Job knew who he was and that he would be worth it. Another thing I want to clarify there is in verse 3, there's a, a phrase, destroy him without reason. The Hebrew word there um, really means something that is earned or a person is due. Um, and so we see that word, uh, that phrase, couple of words translated um, in Job 9, 17. It says, For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. So that's that same phrase, without reason, can be without cause. So it's not that Job's suffering was without reason, meaning that it was meaningless or there was no purpose. It was that his sin wasn't the cause for this suffering. Again, we see that line in the sand that, that God drew, drew. They were reminded that God is in control. So from there, the story continues. Job 2, verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome stores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
This was tremendous physical suffering. At this point, Job had lived through, we're not sure how long, but a period of time of losing his kids and everything that he had and is now completely physically destroyed. In Job 7, verse 5, we see himself really explaining his situation. It says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Just completely physically broken. On top of the emotional pain that he's already walking through with the loss of his children. And now us in our lives, we'll walk through different seasons of suffering, different levels, different intensities, if you will. From the day-to-day, stubbing your toe, getting cut off in traffic, to just the brokenness of our world. Then there's also sickness. For me, I, I am a big uh, man cold uh, I don't know the right word uh, victim is what I feel like um, but when, as opposed to my wife uh, when she has pneumonia or COVID or the flu and the house is still running and the kids are fed and at school and is wonderful when I'm sick I'm in bed crying it doesn't matter what's happening there's different seasons of our life where we go through much more intense suffering. In 2013, I walked through cancer and had both physical and had surgery and recovery and treatment. And, and that was a time of immense suffering, both mentally and physically, because of not knowing what was going to happen. And sometimes the worst suffering that we walk through isn't necessarily our own. This past year, I walked through and watched my dad die of cancer. And it was by far one of the hardest seasons in my life. And if you're like me, in those really, really hard seasons, we start to ask the question of why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening right now, this way? This season, why now? Now we know the big questions of why. We know, and and Jason preached on this in the, the first week, that sin and death entered the world when Adam ate that apple. And that through sin, death entered, and suffering is just death over a long period of time. So we know the big why. And we also know that God is in control that God is sovereign over our suffering, over every little detail. But that question of why can still be there. Why now? Why did this person have to die? And a lot of times we won't get that answer until eternity. But when we don't know this particular wise, what we can know is that there's a purpose in it. There's a reason. And that it's doing something. That God is working. 
I want to step out quickly and go to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, because I, Paul really teaches us really well about this situation. He writes to the church in Corinth, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So often our suffering doesn't feel light and momentary. So often it feels really, really heavy and all-consuming and like it's been going for a long time. So how can Paul say that our suffering is light and momentary? And that doesn't feel like it lines up with our experience. So is it that Paul didn't suffer? And we know that's not true. Paul had a very, very hard life, full of suffering, with persecution. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. On the same day he was shipwrecked, he got bitten by a snake. We see throughout his whole life, he was then imprisoned and killed for his faith. Paul knew suffering deeply. But what he also knew was the hope that he had in eternity. That the suffering of now compared to the day when we will look Jesus in his face and see our Savior, that compared to that, our suffering is light and momentary. And we also read this text carefully. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us That Greek word there for preparing means producing, like you would prepare a meal. Not that you're preparing for the meal, but you are preparing the meal. So it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Not that it is preparing us for glory. But our suffering is literally producing an eternal weight of glory in heaven for us that the promise that our suffering is not meaningless, that there is purpose, and that one day, one day, we will see Jesus face to face. It's one of my favorite scriptures, Revelation 22, verse 4. And we will see his face. That is how suffering is light and momentary. We realize that we are here but for a vapor and with him forever. As we transition back uh, into Job, we're going to now start to look at how people around Job were walking with him and things that we can learn that are helpful and some things that are less helpful. So in, in verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. So probably not what Job was looking to hear in that moment. 
And at first glance, I think most of us as readers give Job's wife kind of a hard time. You know, could you know, at least be nice to the guy. He's been through a lot. But if we think about where Job's wife is coming from, that she too just lost everything. She too just had ten children die. And now she's watching her husband suffer immense physical pain. So if we have that understanding of where she is now, it's easier to give her a little bit of grace. That though she lashes out at Job, Job responds graciously. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He doesn't call her foolish. He says, you are saying things that silly people would say. He's gentle. We see this in contrast to the way that he speaks to his friends later in the book where he isn't as gentle. And he responds to her with truth. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job responded graciously and with truth. Peter, when he's writing to the Jews again, this is in 1 Peter, earlier in the chapter, he exhorts husbands and says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That Job responded, even in his suffering, with kindness and understanding. So here's the next takeaway is we are to show grace and be understanding when people say hurtful things when they are hurting. Job also responded with the truth that God is in control. And that's something that we can rest in. And the hard truth that Job tells his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That Hebrew word for evil is also calamity or disaster. So it's not sin, it's, it's just events that happen. But there's still, Job is still trusting in who God is and he exhorts his wife in that. Again, as we step back into Job uh, 2.11, we see the friends. The friends are now going to be a prominent story, uh, prominent characters in the rest of Job. And they start off really helpful, and then they are less helpful. It says in Job 11, Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him 
for they saw that his suffering was very great. So there's a few things here that they did that were helpful. One, it said that they made an appointment together with him. So Job was living in the community with these friends that they knew enough about him that there was something going on. And they were intentional together to make an appointment to reach out. I know if you're like me, I struggle with having really good intentions of wanting to do something for someone when they're hurting. But then life gets busy and then I forget. But they were intentional that they made an appointment and then they went with their friends and they did it. It says that they wept for their friend. While they were still a ways off, they wept for Job and then with Job. So like in Romans 12, when Paul calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, that they wept for their friend and with their friend. And they did, and then they did them probably the best thing that they could have done is that they sat there in silence. That they didn't try to fix the problem. That they just sat there quietly because they saw that his suffering was great. In, this was in January of, of last year uh, when my dad passed. We had his memorial service here at Solid Rock. And the service was running about 45 minutes late. And I was in the foyer, and about 15 minutes had gone past since it was supposed to start. And there was pictures of my dad on the TVs. Um, and there was a bunch of people there, some I, kn I knew and some I didn't. It was just, it was too overwhelming. I had just watched my dad die not three days before that, and so I, I just couldn't be in there, and so I left. And I walked, and I stood outside, and I was just crying. And without saying anything, Pastor Jason, Pastor Nick, and Pastor Jeremy all came outside, and they just stood there with me and cried. And they didn't say anything. And for 20 minutes, we just stood there and cried. And it was the absolute best thing they could have done for me. Because in that moment, I didn't need to hear theology because I knew it. In that moment, I didn't need them to try to fix what was broken because they couldn't. All I needed was just them there with me. Brothers who loved me, who I knew were for me, and were just silent. Here's the next takeaway is that we feel the presence of God in our life through the presence of believers. That when you're there with fellow believers in times of suffering, your silence and your presence is more powerful than what you can say. Because if you're like me, I, so too often I'm like so quick to want to fix. If my wife is sharing something about her day and someone did something, what can I do? I'm ready. She's like, I just need you to be quiet and listen. We're quick to want to fix and to do, but so too often what we need is just silence. 
So from here, the story continues. And after they sit there in silence for seven days, Job is the one who breaks the silence. And Job says, Curse of the day that I was born. And he just responds, and he spends a whole chapter describing how he wishes he was never born. And then from there, because he starts to speak, the friends now think, okay, now I can start to help. Now I can start to fix. And we have 27 chapters of the three friends taking turns telling Job why he is in his suffering. So this is the part where they become less helpful. And they say, the only reason you're suffering is because you are sinning. God is just, and he only will bring suffering on sinners. And they each take a turn telling him why, and then Job comes back and says, I'm not, I'm not walking in sin. I am an upright man. who I love God. I fear God. That can't be why. And it goes for 27 chapters, and them all taking different terms of the friend saying, you're only suffering because you're sinning, and Job saying, no, 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 no. Let me talk to God. If I can just talk to God, I'll explain that I'm not sinning. And he's justifying himself more and more. Well, then we're introduced to this other character, Elihu, who's this younger guy. He says that he's scared to speak because Job and his friends are older than him, and so he doesn't want to correct them, so he was just going to sit and listen until they got it right. And he says, you never did, and now if I don't speak, my chest will blow up, and I, I have to speak to you. So then he spends five chapters correcting these older men and Job, his friends for saying that's not the way that God works. God is just, and so if this is happening, it's just. And then he corrects Job and says, Job, why are you justifying yourself? You should be trusting in God and not in your own righteousness. And then God shows up. In the whirlwind, God's voice comes, and he tells Job, stand firm. I need you to stand up and listen. And God spends three chapters telling Job and his friends and saying over and over, where were you when I created the world? Job, where were you when I told the seas that they can come no further? Where were you when I set the dawn in motion and the night to take over? Where were you when I created these majestic animals? And Job, and God takes a pause, and Job, after three chapters, says, God, God, I'm sorry, I won't speak. I'll put my hand over my mouth, and I won't speak any further. And God says, I'm not finished yet. Stand here and listen some more. And then for another chapter and a half, God continues to say, where were you when I did this? And God reveals that he is in control over everything. And he reminds Job of the God whom, whom he fears. And from then, God turns to his friends and corrects his friends and says, hey, I'm angry with you three because you've said things that are not true about me. But God shows his grace and he says that I'm going to hold back with what I want to do to you. So you need to take some bulls and goats and go sacrifice them and pray with Job. And if you do that, then I will forgive you. And after that, Job is then restored. That God then restores Job 
His fortunes are back and are doubled. He has ten more kids. And he lives four generations to see, well, that's what great, great, great grandkids. And we see the story wrap up with Job. And in that, it's kind of hard to relate to Job at times. Not just because of the level of suffering that he went through, but because at the end, his life is restored. And oftentimes, ours isn't. And we're not promised this side of eternity that everything will be okay. But we are promised eternity. That we are promised to sit and see Jesus. So again, the main points, God is worthy of our praise no matter our circumstance. That God is in control and is sovereign over the good times and the hard times. That our suffering is never wasted or meaningless and there's always a purpose. We're to show grace and understanding when people say hurtful things when they're hurt. And we will feel the presence of God through the presence of fellow believers in our suffering. So as we close out, I have a couple questions for us for reflection throughout this week. The first one is, are you struggling to find the why for your suffering? Or are you resting in knowing that God is in control? The second is, who is someone in your life that is suffering? How can you come alongside this person to offer understanding and grace? And last, how can you be intentional this week about being slow to speak and quick to listen to those around you who are suffering? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for access to your throne. Father, that we can come before you boldly and cry, Abba, Father. That in our times of suffering, when we walk through difficult times, that we can come before you and cry out, Daddy. And you promise, you promise to be with us from now until the end of eternity. Father, help us to know that our suffering is never meaningless that there is always a purpose. And even if we don't know what it is, Father, we can trust in you as a good, good Father. Lord, we love you and we thank you for everything you did on the cross and saving us so that one day we will see your face. In Jesus' name we pray.